curiosity killed the fucking cat. Don't worry, only metaphorically. October 20th, 2021. The inspiration. Curiosity. I have no special talents. I am only passionately curious. Albert Einstein. I hemorrhage a lot of time and energy worrying about whether I'm doing the right thing, saying the right thing, thinking the right thing. It's honestly a bit much after a while. And the thing is, I know the cures. Kindness and curiosity. I just forget to engage them. Now, I'm not saying that I'm a particularly unkind individual. Generally, it's my default setting, except when I really need it, when I'm in crisis, when I'm pissed, when I'm tired, when I'm scared. Kindness goes right out the window, and usually I get it back, but not before I've behaved abominably. But curiosity, that's less natural to me. I am always reaching for one answer or another, trying to figure out what's right and share it with everyone else as soon as I find it. I often feel so uncomfortable without an answer to put my back against that I have trouble comfortably sitting in uncertainty without freaking out, and that's a curiosity dampener. Instead of needing to always have the answer, I'd like to be not only comfortable with not knowing, but intrigued by the lack of my own knowledge. I'd like to be able to engage with my own curiosity without feeling like somehow I've failed by not knowing an answer. Life. It's a fucking journey, right? The Fat Orange Cat. Fuck that shit. I saw an article on psychology today that linked cursing with honesty, and well, that engaged my curiosity. Is it really true? I wondered, and then I thought about all the truly atrocious liars I've known in my life. One of them didn't curse at all, another cursed all the fucking time. And the third? I honestly can't remember. Maybe a little? Not as much as me, though. Anyway, I don't know if it's necessarily a sign of a more honest individual, but what if you gave that trait to a character in your story? Would someone who cursed all the time be seen as more straightforward, less interested in trying to accommodate people? Hmm, I wonder. Give it a shot. Let me know what happens. The Trope Chekhov's Gun Anton Chekhov wrote in a letter that one must never place a loaded rifle on the stage if it isn't going to go off. It's wrong to make promises you don't mean to keep. We talk about Chekhov's gun often with regard to writing. If you introduce something in the first act, you should use it in the third. Generally, I think that's solid advice, and if you're willing to broaden the concept from props to ideas, this principle is generally well served in three beats and bookends and basically any self-referential part of a story. There are writers that appreciate some randomness in stories, and I think there's a place for that too. Life is random, and wild elements that don't reappear and don't really mean anything can add some verisimilitude to the experience. But overall, when I see a reflection used in a story, I know that the writer is paying attention and working their dough with deliberate thoughtfulness. I appreciate that. The question, right to the market? What's your guiding light when you are creating? Is it thinking about the market slash audience for what you're doing? Or is it about the idea that grabs you, staying true to that and then working the positioning out later? Or somewhere in between? Market maybe. Dear MM, never write to the market. Ever. 
Now, understand that I say that as someone who is a New York Times bestselling author because she did a book with two other major authors. So you go grab as many grains of salt as you need. My solo books did great critically, but they never blew the lid off the market. Still, I stand by my advice. Never, ever write to the market. Here's why. One, by the time a particular kind of book is hot, you've already missed the boat. Two, Markets get hot on a particular kind of book because that kind of book wasn't previously that big. So the writer who hit the jackpot with that kind of book wasn't writing to the market. They were writing what they wanted to read. Three, you'll never do your best work unless you're doing the work that you want to do. Also, thinking about the market is outcome-oriented thinking, and I'm not a fan of that. Focus on the things you can control, writing great stories that mean something to you. Write as many of those as you can, and if the traditional publishing market doesn't want it, self-publish and keep your damn profits. Traditional publishing is validating, yes, but the mid-list is shrinking, and even if you're on it, it sucks. You give away 90% of the profit from your book only to have to do all of your own marketing and paying for your own travel to signings, if you can even book any signings, which you'll also be likely doing on your own. Plus, your publisher is basically the dread pirate Roberts, who every night tells you they'll most likely kill you in the morning. Think of the market like a wide open field. Sometimes a storm hits and lightning strikes in that field, but no one knows where it's going to strike. Your best bet at having lightning strike is not putting one lightning rod next to the spot where it struck last time. It's to put as many lightning rods in that field as possible. So my answer is, write what you love and are excited about and forget everything else. Create as much as you reasonably can and self-publish if no one in traditional publishing is interested. You don't need validation. Just write, just create, do it because you love it. And when it's done, the fact that you created a thing should be the only reward you ever want or expect. Forget the market, do the thing. The Practical, Fairy Tales. I can feel myself sliding into a renewed fascination with fairy tales. I watched the Explained episode on fairy tales earlier this week and felt my curiosity tweak hard, partially because I referenced them a bit in the How Story Works book, which is in second draft edits right now, and partially because I've always had a fascination with the way some fairy tales were told through the millennia all over the world. There's something about retelling a story over and over again that has a sacredness to it. It feels like, as the story passes from hand to hand, the ephemeral in human experience becomes recorded and permanent. So many human ideas and perspectives are woven into the fabric of these stories until the stories themselves become artifacts, preservations of the dream world, carrying deep subtext and magic and imagination from so many cultures as they grab bits and pieces of all who touch them and weave the human subconscious into something that is neatly packaged and so much more than it may seem. Fairy tales engage my curiosity and make me want to dive deep into the folklore of the ages and meet the people long dead who still live within the woven fabric of these stories and whisper things we've forgotten we know. The worlds they lived in are wildly different from the one we live in now, but it's the common ideas, desires, experiences, and beliefs that show us that people have always been and will always be essentially the same. It's fascinating, and I believe it'll be the next rabbit hole I dive down once I'm done with this book and I'm free to dive. (music) 
Red and the seven anchor scenes. This is what we in the business call repurposing content. October 23rd, 2021. Dear writer, as you all know, I'm still in edits on the House Story Works book. It's going pretty well, although my editor is driving me hard to get it done. Love you, Kelly. Anyway, because you guys are paid subscribers, and a little bit because I'm working 12-hour days between work and this so I can get it all done, but mostly because you are paid subscribers and I appreciate your support, you get previews. I wrote a Little Red Riding Hood story specifically to illustrate the seven anchor scenes and how they work. I thought I'd share that with you because I actually quite like it. Hope you do too. Enjoy. Everything, L. Illustrating the seven anchor scenes. To illustrate the seven anchor scenes, I'm going to expand on our simplified version of Little Red Riding Hood from earlier in this book. We've already done Red's story with the basic sea change structure, and I'll map that four-point structure, start the conflict, escalate the conflict, end the conflict, change the world, to the three-act seven anchor scene structure to illustrate the concepts behind the anchor scenes, but also so you can see how you expand a story from a simple structure to a more complex one. Act 1, Inciting Incident, Start the Conflict. Red comes inside after doing her chores to find Mother crying at the kitchen table. Red asks what's going on. Mother says that Grandma is ill. Mother wants to go take care of Grandma, but there's so much to do at the farm. She can't take that kind of a trip. Red says she can go, but Mother hesitates. It's too dangerous. Red promises to be careful. Mother agrees with a sigh of combined relief and apprehension. As she loads up a basket with food and medicine, she gives strict instructions. Don't talk to anyone, don't stray from the path, and get to Grandma's before dark. Red promises to follow her mother's instructions, takes the basket, and heads out. The walk is pleasant, it's a sunny day, and no one is around, and Red is enjoying herself. After a while, Red notices some movement and glances around. Nothing. She walks a little more and hears a whistle. She looks around. Nothing. A few more steps, and suddenly a beautiful dark gray wolf appears just off the forest path, walking in pace with her. Morning, Wolf says. Red says nothing. Nice day, don't you think? Wolf asks. Red says nothing. Luckily, I'm not the kind of guy who takes things personally, Wolf says, and slows down, letting Red continue on her way. Red is relieved, but then she hears singing. It's Wolf. Red stops to listen. His voice is deep and gravelly but the melody has a surprising bounce to it. Her feet are eager to dance, but Red holds still. When he finishes the song, she asks, Who taught you to sing? In an instant, Red realizes she broke one of her mother's rules. She spoke to him. But his song was so lovely, and she wants to hear it again so she can remember it. She thinks Grandma would love that song. But Mother said not to talk to anyone. Red starts away again, eyes on her feet to be certain she does not stray from the path. If she keeps her head down and stays away from the edge of the path, maybe the wolf will just go away. What's the rush, says Wolf, walking just off the path, keeping pace with Red. Don't you like my song? Red shakes her head. I know you can speak, says Wolf. You spoke to me just a minute ago. Red keeps walking, eyes on the path. My mother taught it to me, Wolf says, and wanders off, ambling lazily into the woods without looking back. Red glances up to see him retreat and continues on her way. She keeps her feet solidly within the bounds of the forest path and gets to Grandma's before dark. That night, as Grandma sleeps, Red sits by the fire trying to remember the wolf's song. 
She hums a bit to herself, then hears a hint of gravelly voice from deep in the darkness singing that tune. She goes to the window and strains to listen, but hears nothing more than the wind. Here we've launched Red's internal conflict. She wants to obey her mother, but she also wants more of Wolf. Act one to act two turn, engaging with the conflict. Escalate the conflict. The next day, Red is picking flowers in Grandma's garden. The sky is blue, the sun is shining, and she sings the song to herself quietly. What terrible song is that, a voice says. Red jumps and looks up. It's Wolf. It's your song, Red says. That is not my song, Wolf says. You got all the notes wrong. Well, I like my version just fine. And anyway, Red catches herself once again talking to Wolf and stops. Wolf grins. Your mother said not to talk to anyone on the way to Grandma's, Wolf says. But now you're here. The rules have changed. Red looks at him. How do you know what my mother said? That's what all the mothers say. Red buries her face in her flowers so Wolf can't see her smile. There are prettier flowers just over there, he says, nodding toward the vibrant field of wildflowers blooming off the forest path. Red meets Wolf's eye and says, Now what would my mother have to say about that? Wolf shrugs. Nothing, if she never finds out. Red gets up, brushes the dirt from her knees, and hugs her basket of flowers to her chest. Maybe tomorrow, she says, and allows a sly smile. Well then, maybe tomorrow I'll teach you how to sing that song right, Wolf says. Red heads back into the house, feeling a small thrill in her certainty that he is watching her walk away. Red is engaging with the conflict. She's not rushing to disobey her mother, but she's having fun flirting with Wolf. Act 2, Midpoint Reversal. Escalate the Conflict. The next day, Red goes outside and starts down the forest path, walking by a field of wildflowers. She pauses at the edge of the forest path. She hums the song as best she can remember it. Wolf doesn't show up. Red lifts her foot but pauses and puts it back solidly on the path. She hums a little louder and looks off toward the trees that line the edge of the field. Behind them is darkness, but she doesn't sense any movement there. He's not there. He's not coming. Disappointed, Red goes back inside the house. That night, Grandma starts to run a fever. Red puts cold cloths on her forehead and gives her the medicine Mother sent, but nothing works. It's late, but Red doesn't feel like she can wait until morning. She puts on her red cloak and grabs a torch, then heads out to find the doctor. She's barely out of sight of the house when Wolf shows up. Hey, Red, he drawls. Awfully late for a good girl like you to be out and about, isn't it? Leave me alone, Red says, and moves faster down the path. Wolf's tone goes from playful to serious. What's wrong? I need to go get the doctor, she says, her voice brittle. Grandma's sick. I think she's dying. Nothing I do helps. She's... Red glances back over her shoulder at the house, the unthinkable crossing her mind. She looks back at Wolf. She's alone. Go back, Wolf says. I'll get the doctor. But go, he says, and disappears into the night. Red hesitates, then rushes back to Grandma's house. Grandma is still alive, but suffering, and Red goes from Grandma's side to the window, worried about how phenomenally stupid she was to ever trust a wolf. But soon, she sees a dim light on the path, moving closer. It's a lantern. It's the doctor. The doctor gives Grandma some medicine, and the fever comes down. In the morning, Red makes them all breakfast, and Grandma seems to be doing better. The doctor leaves. 
Grandma naps. Later in the day, Grandma is still napping and Red is bored. She putters around the house for a little while, but then goes outside and walks purposefully off the path and into the field of wildflowers and starts to pick them. Once she has an armful, she glances up at the forest's edge and sees movement in the dark shadows. Wolf steps out of the forest, but doesn't move closer. He just looks at her. She looks back. Her heart races. She feels a trickle of sweat at the back of her neck. He turns and goes back into the forest. She turns and goes back into the house. The midpoint reversal. Wolf honored her trust and did as he said he would. Red wants him. Act two to act three turn. No way out but through. Escalate the conflict. Grandma is almost all better. She tells Red to go back home so that Mother doesn't worry. Red doesn't want to go right away. She likes it here, in the woods. It's so much more peaceful than in town. Grandma gives Red a knowing look. You have to go back, Grandma says. But someday, when I'm gone, this house will be yours and you can stay here all the time. Red is horrified at that thought and jumps up to hug Grandma. I don't want your house without you in it. Grandma hugs her back and says, Don't fight nature, child. You'll lose. I don't know about that, Red says, teasing. I'm pretty stubborn. Red packs up her things and Grandma fills her basket with food and wine for Mother. Red heads out on the forest path. When she's almost out of sight of the house, she turns to wave but sees that Grandma has already gone inside. Red pauses on the path. She looks out over the field of wildflowers to the forest edge. She glances back at the house, and then she runs. She runs off the path through the field to the edge of the forest where the line of trees stand like soldiers on guard duty. She stops and stares into the darkness. There are shapes there in the darkness, but she can't make them out. She reaches out her hand into the shadows, and a voice says, Are you sure you want to do that? She gasps and pulls her hand back. Wolf watches her from a few yards away. It's rude to sneak up on people, she says. It's rude to go where you don't belong, he says. It's as much my forest as yours, she says. He laughs. That is not even close to being true. He moves toward her. But if you'd like, I can show you. Red feels a thrill rush through her, followed by stark fear. She glances behind her and realizes she can't even see the forest path from where she is. She's spoken to the wolf. She's gone off the forest path. And now here she is at the edge of darkness. But there's no going back now, is there? She's not going to just go back on the path and go home like a good little girl. Is she? Show me, she says. He steps in front of her and walks slowly backwards, moving into the shadows. Her eyes locked on his. She follows. No way out but through. Once Red has broken two of the three rules, she has to break the third. She has to know. Act three, dark moment. Escalate the conflict. Wolf doesn't speak as Red follows him deeper and deeper into the forest. It's midday. She knows it's midday. But forest shadows make it feel like dusk. The bright red of her cloak is now dark like blood. And the wolf, who appeared charcoal gray in the daylight, now has a silver shimmer to his coat, making him look like he's made of starlight. 
He leads her through an area of thick branches, and she has to crawl on her knees to enter his lair. The ground is covered in soft pine needles, and the space smells sweet and earthy. Sit, he says, and she does. It's so dark, she can barely see him. The air is thick and close, completely silent. He begins to sing the song, but it's different. Before it was playful and fun. Now it is plaintive and melancholy. She feels suddenly tired and lies down on the ground. He crawls up next to her, and his body is so warm that she instantly falls into a deep, dreamless sleep. When she wakes up, she's alone. Where there was very little light before, there is none now. Woof, she whispers, her voice cracking. There's no sound, and fear rushes through her. She knows she is alone, in the forest, in the dark. He left her. Her eyes have adjusted a bit to the darkness, just enough that she can grab her basket and find her way out of the lair, but once she's out, she's not sure which way to go to get back to the field of wildflowers. She rushes through the forest. A tree branch grabs at her cloak, pulling it off her, but she doesn't stop. She runs, breathing hard, spikes of panic shooting through her chest. She can feel eyes on her, lots of them, but nothing chases her as she runs. Whatever is in that forest is letting her pass. She makes it to the field and it's way past dark. Red doesn't know which way to go. Home? To mother? Or back to grandma's? Should she call for wolf? Where did he go? She rushes through the field, the wildflowers and weeds slapping at her shins. When she gets to the forest path, she's about to head toward home when she hears a noise coming from grandma's house. Oh God, oh God, oh God. Her mind can't form any other thoughts as she runs. That is a dark moment. Red already knows what has happened, but she's going to Grandma's anyway, because she has to know for sure. Act 3, Climax. End the conflict. Red bursts through the front door, but everything is silent. The fire is still going in the fireplace. Dishes are neatly put away, nothing out of place. Red starts to relax and even laughs at herself for allowing her imagination to run off with her. Everything's okay. Everything's fine. She sets her basket on the floor and calls out. Grandma, she says, I'm sorry. I did something so stupid and I think I'm going to just stay the night here and go back in the morning if that's okay. The door to the bedroom opens and Red turns with a smile. And there is Wolf in the doorway, just watching her. What did you do? She whispers, her heart rate picking up again. Wolf says nothing. What did you do? She screams and runs past him into Grandma's room. It's empty. Where is she? Red asks. She's gone, Wolf says. Where? Red asks, her voice quivering. Don't ask a question. You already know the answer to. Wolf responds. Red sits on the edge of the bed, clasping the bedspread so tight in her fist that her fingers start to hurt. How could you? Stop pretending, Red, Wolf says. You knew I was a wolf when you let me in. Red stares at the floor, her throat choked as tears blur her vision. I didn't let you in. 
Oh, come on, Wolf says, smirking at her one last time before turning his back and ambling away. Sure you did. Red sits on the edge of the bed, staring down at the floor. Slowly, she pulls her grandmother's quilt around her and falls back into the bed, where she silently cries until finally she falls asleep. Red's conflict here was always internal. She wanted to obey her mother, but she also wanted to see what was beyond the forest's edge. When she did that, she grew up, but there was a cost. Now, as she pulls her grandmother's blankets around her, she accepts that the girl who obeyed is gone. That battle is over. Act 3. Resolution. Change the world. A few weeks later, Red sweeps the living room of Grandma's house, which is now hers. She shoes the dirt out of the front door and raises her hand up to shield her eyes from the sun as she looks out at the field of wildflowers. She can barely see the forest edge from the stoop. She goes back inside, leaving the door open. A light breeze flows through the house as she ambles to the kitchen. As she washes the dishes, she sings the wolf's tune. Plate, plate, mug, spoon. She sets them all in the rack to dry, then turns toward her open front door and wipes her hands on her apron. Wolf stands at the threshold, watching her as she pulls the apron strings free at the small of her back. Morning, she says and heads to the bedroom, not looking back to see if Wolf will follow her. Because she knows he will. The world has changed. Red has gone from girl to woman. She has lost innocence, but she has gained her own power. She knows exactly what Wolf is, and she chooses to be with him, but on her terms now. She may never trust him again, but he will never trick her again. And she lives peacefully within that watchful truce. Chapter 4 